Amen. Good morning. You're getting a little bit better. Good to see all of you this morning. Just a couple things before the message. Last week, the youth had their retreat, and they had a great time. And this weekend, we have many, many of our women up in Prescott for their retreat. And just uh, if I could ask you to be praying for them as they travel back this afternoon, as you all know, the Prescott uh, got a few inches of snow. And so they're going to be coming down off the mountain this afternoon and just pray for safety for all of them as they travel back. Also, last week, uh, just to give you a little bit of, a, of an update, uh, the town of Gilbert was taking soil samples from out here, and they were surveying that piece of property back there. So we're continuing to see things happen. And as Mike shared last week, uh, we're going to be getting some renderings done uh, of what that building uh, and property is going to look like and be able to post those out there for you to start to look at and start to dream with us about what God is going to do. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning, beginning at verse 18. Luke 13, beginning at verse 18. I always hope that on Wednesdays and Sundays that we all try to sort of put ourselves in the stories of the Bible that we are reading and that we are studying. It helps us to make them come alive, and I hope that that will be the case this morning, that as we sort of travel through the gospel of Luke with Jesus, that we sort of put ourselves in that same place and that we imagine ourselves not only walking with him but hearing him and listening to him as he shares from his heart. And speaking of heart, the title of my message today is The Heart of the King. I believe the passage we're going to be looking at this morning reveals to us in many ways the heart of Jesus. You're going to see a heart that wants to illuminate and instruct. You're going to see a heart that is a heart that wants to encourage and exhort, a heart that is expressing fearlessness and courage, a heart that expresses love and care and compassion. And you will see all these different expressions of Jesus' heart throughout this passage of Scripture this morning. Now, Again, we study the Word of God in context. So let's not forget where we left off last week uh, to get a bearing for where we are this morning. Uh, Jesus has just healed someone on the Sabbath day. And the president of the synagogue is outraged. And we know that as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, that, that Jesus is beginning to get more and more pushback from his for his ministry from the religious leaders of Israel. He, he's getting more and more heat, more and more pressure, right? So he wants to take this opportunity at this point to share his heart with his followers and give them a word of encouragement, a word of assurance, a word of affirmation. Because as they're looking at things through their physical eyes, they may begin to become discouraged. 
thinking that, wow, you know, most of the people aren't buying into Jesus and his ministry, and especially the religious leaders of our nation are, for the most part, opposed to him. So where does that leave us, and how does that make us feel? So Jesus, beginning in chapter 13, verse 18, says, what is the kingdom of God like? And and how can I compare it to something? He says, well, let me start out by saying it's like the grain of a mustard seed, very, very tiny seed, that a man planted in his garden, but it grew. It grew from this very small seed to this tree, a tree that the very birds could nest in. And then he goes on and he says in verse 20 and 21, you could also compare it to a pinch of yeast or leaven that a woman uses to infiltrate the ball of dough. And even though it starts out as this little pinch of yeast, it it eventually permeates throughout the whole lump. Why is Jesus sharing this? Well, for one reason, most of his audience at this point were Jews. Remember, he was in the synagogue when he healed the woman. So at this point, he's not talking to too many Gentiles. He's talking to Jews. And most of the Jews in Jesus' day, when they were looking for their Messiah to come, They were looking for the Messiah to come and set up his visible earthly kingdom then to overthrow the Roman Empire and to put his kingdom down at that point. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the first phase of my kingdom. Because if you knew the Old Testament scriptures, you would know that my kingdom is going to come in two phases. The first phase is the present phase that is invisible. And then later on in history, I'm going to come back and I'm going to set up my literal visible kingdom on this earth. And so Jesus is using then these comparisons or illustrations to say, look, just because you look at my kingdom now and you may think that it is very small, That's true. It's going to start out very small, but it's going to become very big. So don't despise small things and small beginnings. God wants all of us to understand that, and he wants to assure us and give us that affirmation that God always starts out small, but it can grow into something huge, you see. And so that's why he's using here the pinch of yeast in the dough and this very tiny seed that is planted that grows. God's kingdom, though invisible, is growing right now, whether you and I can see it or perceive it or not. And Jesus is saying God's kingdom 
is going to prevail over man's kingdom one day. Just because you don't see it or perceive it in your lifetime because a lot of what God is doing is behind the scenes and invisible and internal now. It's not external and visible. He says you may, like the people in Jesus' day there, you may think that, you know what? Satan's winning and evil is winning and, and where's God and, and is God ever going to show up and all of this, and Jesus saying, you've got to understand something. Though my kingdom starts out small, I have told you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will grow, and it is growing all over the world. In fact, in verse 29, Jesus says, in my kingdom there will be people who come from the east and the west and the north and the south to sit at my banquet table in the literal, visible, physical kingdom one day. So don't despise small beginnings and don't judge what God is up to right now simply because you may not physically be able to see it or perceive it. I mean, that's something that all of us have to take in, into consideration every day, every week. Even here at church, on Wednesdays and Sundays, God could be working in someone's life, and I would never know it because God is meeting them right where they are, internally, at that heart level, and I'll never know about it. But that doesn't mean God's not working. And God is working all over the world right now. He's working in countries and, and nations all over this place. And that's why the Bible says one day when we get to the kingdom, there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, everywhere around the world. They will be represented there because God is at work. And he wants us to realize that, you see, and be encouraged by it and be comforted by it and be assured by it, you see. Do not walk by sight, but walk by faith. And so here you see, first of all, the heart of Jesus, not wanting his followers to be discouraged because they're part of something that starts out very small and seemingly insignificant. He wants them to be encouraged that this is going to grow and going to continue to grow until one day, his kingdom literally is going to be on this earth. And as the book of Revelation says, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And you and I are going to be part, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, of that eternal, visible, literal kingdom that starts here on earth one day. Then verse 22. He continues to travel through the towns and villages of Israel. And as he does so, he is teaching all the time because that's his heart. He has this heart of wanting to illuminate and to instruct those around him, to give them the knowledge and the wisdom and the insight that can only come from God. And then it says that, He's making his way toward Jerusalem. That's significant because Jesus knows what Jerusalem holds for him. 
In fact, if you look back in chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, it says that Jesus set out resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Here is a man on a mission. Here is a man who's living with purpose. He knows what direction his life is to go. And from very early on in his ministry, though he would travel all over Israel and though he would teach and do miracles and, and healings and all of that, his focus was always, I'm going to end up in Jerusalem because that's what I came to earth for. I came to die on the cross in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. And so his focus was always there resolutely going to Jerusalem in spite of what he knew Jerusalem would hold for him. Which then I want you to go down to verse 31 of Luke 13. Because at this time, there were actually some Pharisees who were not as opposed to Jesus in his ministry as the majority were. Maybe we're talking about Nicodemus here. Maybe we're talking about Joseph of Arimathea here. I don't know who the, some of the Pharisees were, but they come to Jesus in verse 31, it's recorded, and they say, Jesus, you got to hightail it out of here. Because guess what? Herod is after you, and he wants to kill you. You know what Jesus' response is? His response expresses the heart of one who is fearless, one who is courageous, one who knows what is ahead of him, but he is unflinchingly going to stay the course. He says, you go tell that old fox, Herod, that I'm casting out demons, that I'm healing people today and tomorrow because on the third day, I will complete my work. In fact, he goes on to say, I must be on my way today, tomorrow, and the next day. For he says, it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. What's Jesus saying in all of this? Well, again, he's saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what God has for me in Jerusalem. I'm certainly not afraid of Herod because here's what Jesus is also saying. Herod's not in control. The Roman Empire's not in control. God is in control. And he is basically saying by using these words that God's plan cannot and will not be thwarted by men. God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and no one is going to thwart it. Now, by Jesus expressing that kind of heart, he's not only leaving an example for us, but he's saying to us, we can live the same way. We don't ever have to be afraid that we can always be filled with courage and confidence knowing that human leaders are not the ones that are in control. God is. And nothing is going to happen in this world unless it's 
part of God's plan and God allows it for his purposes. And nothing can happen to us unless God allows it and it's part of his purpose. Therefore, we can live every day with courage and fearlessness because God's plan for us is not ever going to be thwarted by any men. It cannot. It will not. It's impossible. Either God is sovereign and he's in control and he's always on the throne or he's not. And Jesus here is basically saying, my father's on the throne. He's in control. I'm going to Jerusalem and no one's going to stop me or thwart me from dying on the cross as been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years. It will happen so that salvation could be made available to all people. See, this is the heart of Jesus. And it's the kind of heart that he wants to begin to shape into every one of us. So then go back up to verse 23 and 24 of Luke chapter 13. This is a very important point. Someone from the crowd asked Jesus a question. Lord, are there, are there only going to be a few who are saved it's a good question. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 24. And I want you to really note what Jesus says. He says, exert every effort to enter the narrow door. For I tell you, many will try to enter and not be able. By the way, the word try in the original language literally is the word seek. I want you to keep that in mind for a little bit later on because we live in a day and age even amongst church culture and Christianity that is all about seekers. So we'll get back to that. The word that Jesus uses that is translated in the Net Bible, exert every effort, is the Greek word agonizomai. Can you guess what English word comes from agonizomai? Agony. Agony. To agonize over something. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need to make sure that in a sense you agonize over making sure that you go to that narrow and go through that narrow door. What's the narrow door? Jesus. Jesus even said, I am the door. Other times he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me or by me. Jesus makes it very clear in other places that, that wide is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go that way, which is why he exhorts even in that passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew to make sure you enter the narrow gate because that is the only way that leads to life. And it's difficult. And few, few find that way. 
Now, I want to first apply this to salvation. Let's start there. Because again, remember, he's addressing predominantly Jewish people who thought that simply by being born a Jew, they were good. They had a home in heaven because they were God's people from the very start. And Jesus is wanting to shake them and say, it's not just about being born a Jew. You also have to enter the narrow door. And I am the door. And unless you come to a time in your life where we talked about last week, where you embrace personally Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will not enter that door because there is no other door to salvation other than Jesus Christ. As Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So one of the things and one of the ways that we can apply what Jesus is saying here is that he is talking to those who aren't saved yet. And he's saying to them, you have to be willing to exert every effort to make sure that you get into that door, which is me. Why? He's not saying we have to work for salvation. What he's saying here is that the world, the flesh, and the devil will do everything that they can do to keep us, a human being, from entering the narrow door, which is Jesus Christ, and establishing a relationship. Our own flesh is full of pride, and in order to be saved, you've got to humble yourself. So our flesh fights against humbling ourselves and saying to Jesus, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I'm acknowledging that I'm a sinner. That takes a lot of humility, and our flesh will fight against that. The world says, oh, no, no, what we can offer you is way better than what Jesus could ever offer you in the life that he has for you. What we offer you is the world. That's what's truly fulfilling and satisfying. Don't go in the narrow door. He has nothing for you. And then, of course, the devil, he doesn't want you to get saved. He will do everything he can to throw up every obstacle and everything he can in your life to keep you from entering that narrow door because he knows that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So Jesus is saying, I'm not teaching here that you have to work for your salvation because we know we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But Jesus is saying, you have to be willing, in a sense, to enter the arena and contend for the prize. You've got to be willing to fight as a human being and fight against those forces in your life that tries to keep you from me. Now, there's also a second way to apply what Jesus said. And that is that it's not just a principle where he's talking to those that don't know him yet. This principle very much applies to all of us as Christians. Because to be saved doesn't mean just to enter into a personal relationship with Christ. It also means to experience all that God has for us in our salvation, that abundant life, all that Jesus 
desires for us to experience is out there. But unless you and I are willing to exert maximum effort, we'll never experience all that God has for us. Because just like before salvation, guess what? The world is going to do everything they can to throw up all these distractions in our life to where we're not abiding and remaining in Jesus Christ and soaking up all that he has for us. We get so busy out there in the world and we're missing Jesus and what he has for us. And then there's our flesh. Our flesh is like, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to go the way of Jesus. I want to live my own life. I want to make my own plans. I want to make my own decisions. I want to be independent even though I'm a saved person. And, and I want to do that. And so our flesh fights against the surrender that we need to have as Christians in order to experience the fullness of salvation and the abundant life that Christ has come to give us. And then obviously, too, just like before salvation, there's the devil trying to do everything he can. He hasn't gotten our soul now because we've given our life to Christ, but he certainly can make our life filled with all other kinds of things to occupy ourselves with instead of just the narrow door. The narrow door. And so Jesus here is sharing his heart and he's exhorting and encouraging those who are listening, don't miss going through that narrow door because that's the only door that you will truly experience life to its fullest. If you bypass that door, which is me, if you try to find life and abundance and all of that and fulfillment and satisfaction in some other, opening up some other door rather than the door that just leads to me, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So Jesus says, are you willing to fight for what really matters in your life? You know, that, and that's why Jesus then goes on to say something very important. He says, I tell you, many, he doesn't say few, he says, many will try or seek, but not be able. You see, what Jesus is saying is, all those who are seeking never find it. <clears throat> because it takes more than just trying. It takes more than just seeking. It ex as Jesus says, it is exerting every effort to fight against all the distractions and all the things, all the obstacles that the world, the flesh, and the devil will place in our path, and we've got to fight for our life with Jesus and push those other things away continually so that we find our fullness and our abundance in Jesus alone. And then... I want you to come down to verse 34 and 35. Here's where Jesus expresses that heart of love and care. He comes to the outskirts of Jerusalem. In another passage 
a parallel passage. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And the tears literally are flowing. He's weeping as he's saying these words. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's not talking to the city. He's talking to the people in that city. He says, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. First of all, do we not see the love that Jesus has for people? You see, Jerusalem is death for him. And yet the tragedy is not his. According to Jesus himself, the tragedy is all those who will reject him. Because the Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross because he knew what was coming after. But he also knows what's coming after for those who reject him. And that is an eternity without him and the loss of all that is worthwhile. So Jesus is like, oh. And, and notice the contrast here. He's basically saying, I would, but you wouldn't. I wanted to love on you. I wanted to embrace you. I wanted to care for you. But you didn't want anything of it. You kept pushing me away. By the way, that also reminds us here that short of overriding our free will, which is something very important to God, God will do everything he can do short of overriding our free will to bring us to himself. I hope that that will be an encouragement to many of you who are thinking about and maybe praying for those in your life that have not come to Jesus yet. That nothing short of violating their free will, Jesus will do because that's his heart. He's come to seek and save those who are lost. And he has that same heart, obviously not just for the lost, but for his own people. He's saying to all of us, let me love on you. Receive the great love that I have for you. You will never find a love greater than mine. You will never have someone in your life that cares about you and wants to care for you and look out for you and look after you like I do. I wanted this. I wanted to be close. I wanted that intimacy. I wanted to draw you together. I wanted to hug on you and bring you in, but you would not. Over and over and over again, as a nation, the nation of Israel said, nope, and they pushed Jesus away. I hope and pray today that there's not anyone here in this room or those who are watching from their homes today who's doing the same thing that Jesus wants to love on you. He wants to pour out his love upon you, and you keep pushing him away.
Because notice then what Jesus says in verse 35. If you continue to reject me, your house will be forsaken. It means that instead of enjoying and experiencing God's protective wing and shadow, they're going to be left exposed, empty, and at risk because they've made a choice. I don't want you, Jesus. I don't need your love and care for me, Jesus. I can do this on my own. And Jesus says, fine, it's your choice. But know this, he goes on to say in verse 35 something very important. He says, I tell you the truth. No one will see me until they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to see this today. Notice that phrase, lock into that phrase. No one will see me until they say. No one will see until they say. No one will see until they say. We must confess and acknowledge Jesus before we have any kind of spiritual sight or vision in our life. You cannot see what God has for you until you say. Say or faith has to come first. We want God to open up and show us things before we believe and we trust and we confess with our mouth. But Jesus is saying that is not God's way. You must say before you see. And they were not, as a people, going to experience the blessing of God until they were willing to acknowledge that Jesus was sent from God. And that's why he says, you will not see me again until you as a nation say, blessed is the one. Until they recognize Jesus as their Messiah, they will not see him again. So Jesus here, in this great passage of Scripture, is sharing his heart. He's pouring out his heart. He's weeping over a city of people who are rejecting him. And again, he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. But in his own heart of hearts, that's not the greatest tragedy, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. The greatest tragedy is that after all that he has done, his love will be rejected. His care will be pushed away. Think about this. Every stripe that Jesus took on his back from the Romans scourging him, every stripe was a stripe expressing his love for each of us. Every drop of blood that Jesus shed was an expression of his love. That crown of thorns that punctured his skull, and we all know head wounds bleed more than anywhere else on the body. All that blood that was flowing down the face of Jesus 
was an expression of his love for us. All of the bruising and beating that he took on his face and everywhere else, all was an expression of his love. He's basically saying, what more can I do? I'm here hanging on a cross. My arms are open. I simply want to embrace you. I I want you to realize how much I love you and the extent that I am willing to go to to establish a relationship with you. Will you let me love you? And I think about how down through history, how many millions of human beings have said to that love, the greatest love ever, nope, don't want it, don't need it, I can do without it. So here today, I hope more than anything else, whether you're saved or whether you're not saved, that all of us will open up our hearts to the love of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more transforming Nothing that can strengthen us. Nothing that can be more encouraging and stabilizing than just letting God love on us. And that's what he wants to do. Like he said, I just want, like a hen (laughs) gathers her chicks up and brings them close under their wings. That's what I want to do with each of you. I want to embrace you today. I want you to bring, I want to bring you in to me. And I want to give you the best embrace and hug you could ever have. I want you to know how much I love you today. Will you open your heart up to the love that God has for you today. In this passage, we have truly seen the heart of our king. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. And as they're coming and getting set here on the platform, I'm going to ask all of you if you would stand with me and we'll close in prayer before our time of closing our service out this morning. God, I just, I want to take that image of Jesus standing over the city of Jerusalem today, God, and I want each of us to change that to Jesus standing over Gilbert today or Chandler. over the entire Phoenix area, standing up on one of the mountains that surrounds the Valley of the Sun and looking out over all the millions of people that live in this valley. And those tears coming down Jesus' cheeks as he looks out over this valley and says, oh, how often... I have wanted to gather all of you up and bring you in. But you wouldn't. 
You kept pushing me away. God, I pray today that none of us who are watching from our homes this morning or none of us who are here in this auditorium this morning would reject that love. It's the greatest love we could ever experience. It's an overwhelming love. It's a love that we truly can't even comprehend, but we accept it by faith. And Lord, I pray today that all of us would just open up ourselves and say, God, thank you for loving me. And I want you to love me. I want to receive all the love, God, that you have for me now and every day for the rest of my life until I see you in eternity. Let your love, God, be the foundation of my life. Let me build my life on that foundation. And God, may I always just be praising you, worshiping you, exalting you for loving me. All we are, God, before you are sinners who have a need, Lord, that we cannot solve on our own. But you loved us enough, God, that you said, I will solve it for you. I'll become the answer. I'll become your savior so that you can have a relationship with me and enjoy and experience my love forever. Lord, may we open ourselves up to that love like never before. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.